gracious Father, our reconciled God, through Christ, we delight in you. And we come today because we want to hear your voice. We want you to teach us and instruct us, O Lord, today. We pray for your help. Pray that we might see the truths that are laid out in the Old Testament for our benefit. Lord, that they were in, put in the scriptures for, for our benefit, upon whom the end of the ages have come. And Lord, these people that have assembled today, they're, they're your sheep, your lambs, your people, the ones you love, the ones Christ died for. Lord, open their eyes to behold these truths and to walk in them today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're in a study of the Old Testament tabernacle. And the tabernacle was God's, you could say God's mobile home. You, you know what mobile homes are. They're homes you can move about on the streets. Well, God had a mobile home in the Old Testament. Only it was even more mobile than mobile homes because it was a tent. You know how mobile tents are. And this tent was so mobile that you could pull up the stakes and leave at a moment's notice. So, uh, you know, today maybe we would call it a motorhome. That would be more like it. God's motorhome. Just drive around and set them down wherever. But it was God's sacred place where his immediate presence could be known. And God gave specific instructions to the children of Israel on how they were to build this tabernacle. Remember last week we talked about several aspects of the tabernacle. We talked about its purpose. The purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell among his people. So that God could meet with them above the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim's wings were hovering over and they were looking down upon that Ark. And God says right there upon the mercy seat, he would meet with God's people. Um, the position of the Ark, or the position of the tabernacle was interesting. Do you remember that it was right in the center of all the different camps? And in Numbers chapter 2, God tells each specific camp where they're to camp each night. And when you take a bird's eye view and look down upon the camps of Israel, do you remember what it looks like? A cross. A huge cross with the tabernacle right at the center. Picturing for us heaven, where the tabernacle represents the throne of God in heaven and all of the multitudes assembled around it. And do you remember there was four banners, one on the north, south, east, and west. And one banner had the face of a man on it, another one the image of a calf, there was an image of a lion, and the image of an eagle. And when you go to the book of Revelation, you find four living creatures surrounding the throne of God, and one living creature resembles a man, another an ox or calf, another a lion, and another an eagle. So it appears that, that God was telling his people how to camp with the tabernacle in the middle to picture heaven where God's glory, his throne, his immediate presence will be manifest and will be assembled around it. He, he is the object of intense worship there in the middle and those four living creatures, whoever they are, surround his presence immediately and then we surround that. We also took a look at the pattern of the tabernacle. You remember that God gave very specific instructions. And he said, make sure that you make this tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that I gave you on the mountain. 
And then over in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says that the tabernacle was a copy of the true one in heaven. Just like when you open your copy machine and put your paper down and close it and hit go, <laughs> and out comes the copy. The, the earthly tabernacle was a copy of something in heaven. Exactly what that is, is left to our conjecture. But whatever that earthly tabernacle was, it was intended to picture a heavenly reality, a heavenly tabernacle. And then we also looked at the portal, which means the entrance into the tabernacle. Do you remember what that fence was made out of that surrounded the tabernacle? Linen. Linen. What color is it? White. white. What does white stand for? Purity. This is the holiness and righteousness of God pictured by that fence. And God's righteousness is a bar to sinners. A sinner can't get too close to God because the sinner's sinful. God is holy. And so that fence around the tabernacle pictures that unless you become holy, you can't get any further. You can't get inside that tabernacle. There is one entrance into, one doorway, picturing Christ as the door. The one entrance the one way to God. And then lastly, we talked about the presentation of the tabernacle. The tabernacle looked differently to an outsider than it did to an insider. So an outsider was some one of the children of Israel. They looked at the tabernacle, and they could see seven and a half feet of this tent, and that was it, because the fence was seven and a half feet high. It hid everything else. They could it, oh, just see the top of that tent. And the top of that tent was ugly. It was made of porpoise skins. That was the outer covering. Porpoise skins were this bluish gray drab material that blocked the sun and protected from the rains. But it was nothing to look at. Showing that the person outside of Christ, when they look at Jesus, they see a historical figure but they don't see the glory in Christ. They don't see His loveliness. They're not attracted to Him. They're not, they don't want to follow Him in every way. But the priest got to go through the doorway. And the priest got to go into the tent of meeting, which was the tabernacle, and they got to serve the Lord there. And that when the priest looked up, he saw this fine, twisted linen with blue, purple, and scarlet material embroidered in it. And they saw gold objects, a, a table and a lampstand and an altar made of pure gold. And they saw the glory inside of the tabernacle. And that's what the believer is privileged to see. The wonder, the beauty, the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to move on today. And today, we're going to move past the doorway. And we're going to come in together into that outer courtyard and see two different objects that are presented there. Oleg, would you put up that first one? So you see the, the fence on the outside? We're going to go through the fence, and you see there's two objects there. One is a bronze altar. That's the big one in front. And then there's a bronze laver right behind it. And before you could go into that tabernacle, you had to first come to the bronze altar and offer sacrifice. Then you had to wash in that laver, that wash basin, and the priest, after he had offered sacrifice, and after he had washed his hands and his feet, then he was permitted to go into the tabernacle, the tent, where God's glory was manifest. Now, let's, let's read from Exodus 27, verses 1 to 8. 
And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pails for removing its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath, under the ledge of the altar, so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. Okay, can you see that? Do you see those horns on each of the four corners? This was a massive structure. Do you remember how big a cubit is? 18 inches, a foot and a half. So if we converted cubits to inches, this is seven and a half feet long. So, okay, I'll just measure it out for you. My strides are three feet each. Would be about from there, where I was just standing, to here. It's that far over there again, and it's four and a half feet tall. So probably about to there. Now, think about this. It was made of wood, and then that wood was overlaid with bronze. Bronze is a heavy metal. Can you imagine carrying that thing through the desert? <laughs> it's like carrying a piano. Every day you get up with four guys, on one on each corner, trying to carry a piano through the desert. The thing was massive. It was, it was heavy. Well, I'll get into that in a minute, but I just want you to get a big picture. There is a... Halfway down from the top was this grating because they had to put these sacrifice, sacrifices. They would kill an ox or a cow or, you know, a, a goat or lamb, and they would chop it up into pieces and put it on this, this grating and burn it up. And that was an offering by fire to the Lord. Yes? So what's the significance of bronze? Because the Lord could have picked up any of the precious metals that we see as more. I'm so glad you asked that because that's my first point, Layla. <laughs> Bronze. Bronze is often pictured um, with judgment in the Bible. It's associated with judgment. In fact, you see the resurrected Christ in Revelation chapter 1, where his feet are burnished bronze, because he's coming again in judgment. So here at the altar, we find that sin is judged by Jesus Christ. The altar is a picture of what? You know what I'm talking about. It's a picture of the cross. This is the cross of Christ where sin is judged, where the sacrifice was made, where the blood was poured out. It's the Old Testament foreshadowing of the cross. Um, let's think about the position of the altar. Once a priest came through that gate, the altar was the first object to meet their eye. It was the very first object that they would come to. And the whole tabernacle system shows how a sinner can approach God. God was in the furthest, most innermost recesses of that tent. 
And so in order to get to God, you had to come through the door, you had to come to the altar, offer sacrifice, then you had to keep going to that basin, that laver, wash your hands and your feet, then and only then you can open up the flap of the door and come inside. You would go by the table of showbread, by the lampstand, by the altar of incense. If you happen to be the high priest one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you could go into that Holy of Holies beyond this, that thick veil. And there you would see one object, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you were the high priest, you would sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God dwelt in His immediate presence. So the tabernacle system shows how people can approach God. Well, the very first thing we learn is that this altar is huge. It's big, it's heavy, it's massive. In fact, all the other objects that we're going to learn about could fit inside this one. That's how big it was. And what does that tell us? It tells us that there is no approach to God unless we come to the cross. It tells us that the priest couldn't go any further until he had offered sacrifice at the altar first. And you and I, we can't get any further in our approach to God unless we come to the cross. Unless you want to come to the cross, you're shut out from God. You're barred from the presence of God. You cannot be reconciled to God. You know, a lot of people today say that they admire Jesus as a historical figure. And they admire his teachings, like the Sermon on the Mount. And they think that he lives just a wonderful life and they try to imitate his example. But you know, none of that can save a soul. You can admire him, you can try to imitate him, you can admire his teachings, how he lived, but that won't get you saved. That won't get you into the presence of God. You've got to come to the cross, or you'll never get to Christ. The, the popular sentiment today is, if you're religious and you're sincere, well, that's all you need. You can, there's, every road leads to God as long as you're sincere. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches there's one road that leads to God. You can be very sincere and sincerely wrong and end up in hell because you followed the wrong path. There's a right path and there are many, many wrong paths. The right path is a narrow road that leads to life. The wrong paths, Jesus calls them a broad way and they lead to destruction. So you've got to be on the right road if you want to get to the right destination. So the priest had to first come to the altar. He couldn't go any further till he offered sacrifice. We, too, must trust a crucified Savior if we want to ever be in the presence of God. And so have you done that? Have you trusted Christ not just as an example or as a religious leader or someone with a, a great life, but have you trusted the cross, what He did there when He died for sin? That's where you really need to put your faith. Christ died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And so the object of our faith is Christ crucified for sin. And we must rest ourselves on that truth of Scripture. That's the starting point. And unless we start there, we, we haven't even begun the Christian life. That's the beginning. So it, the position of the altar was the very first object that you would meet. I love William Cooper's hymn. He wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So William Cooper, in his poetic writing, imagined salvation as like the, uh, a flood, a tide of blood coming from Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. And if we are plunged beneath that flood of blood, all our guilty stains are removed. Now, there isn't a literal flood of blood anywhere. But what he's trying to get us to understand is that the blood of Christ is what saves, and our faith and trust must be in Christ and what he did at the cross, if we're ever going to be saved. Now, let's think of the size of the altar for a minute. Seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, four and a half feet high. It was an imposing object. In fact, it would come up to the very height of the fence. It wasn't higher, but it was at the very same height as the fence surrounding it. Um, if it's four and a half feet high, my thought is that they probably had to have some kind of a ramp. You know, these priests, it would be hard to lift these heavy pieces of an ox or something up on top of that altar. So my feeling is they probably had some kind of a ramp built where they could walk up and set those pieces of meat on the altar and burn them up. So it was very big. In fact, the word altar means to be lifted up. And so this altar was lifted up in the presence of the people. We have to realize the immense importance of the cross. The cross needs to be lifted up. And the size of the cross, figuratively speaking, must be huge in our hearts and in our minds. Do you know what I mean by that? The importance of the cross needs to be gigantic to the Christian. Like there is nothing else more important. The cross has split human history into before Christ and after Christ. Before his death and after his death. That's how important it is. In fact, there is nothing more important that has more eternal significance. The death and resurrection of Christ are it. There is nothing more. There's nothing that even compares with the significance of that. And that's why this altar was so huge. To show us the, the size, the importance of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. So Paul says, God forbid, may it never be that I would ever boast except in one thing, the cross, because the cross is what has saved me. And when Paul came to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul didn't come preaching a perfect life of Christ alone. Paul came preaching the perfect life and the substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Christ. He focused on that. And it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of what I'm talking about. It's impossible because there is nothing that is more important. When you, even when you get to heaven, do you know what you're going to be singing about? How Christ through his blood has redeemed you. Read Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who by his blood has redeemed men out of every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, and made them priests to our God. We're going to be singing about the blood of Christ and the death of Christ for all eternity. So it's fitting that it had this 
high and lifted up place there within the tabernacle. Okay, let's notice the horns that were on the altar. Notice on each corner, you can't see the back two, but believe me, there, there were horns on all four corners of this altar. In fact, uh, Exodus 27 verse 2 tells us that. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Now, a horn in the Bible stands for power or might. Think about the ram or the goat. Where did its power come from to be able to fight off and defend itself from its horns, its big horns, or an elk or deer or some kind of an animal like that? The power and the might of the animal came from the horns. Well, here we're talking about the power of the cross. Four horns were built onto that altar to signify the power that's in the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God for salvation. Now, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15.3, what does it say? What are, what are the historical events that go into the gospel? The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's right. The death of Christ, that he died for sins, and his resurrection from the dead. So here we've got these four horns representing the power of the cross. And what I find interesting um, is that he, it's not our power that is the power of God. Paul didn't say, for I'm not ashamed of myself because I am the power of God. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Paul's opinions weren't the power of God. His, even his testimony wasn't the power of God. His stories weren't the power of God. The gospel message, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was the power of God. This morning we sang there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb, and that is so true. Let's think about the availability of the altar. There were four horns, one on the north, one on the south, one on the east, one on the west, four, pointing to the four points of the globe, the four compass directions, the power of the cross going out in every direction. I think that's a fitting emblem of the availability of the cross of Christ to all people throughout the world, whether you live in the north, the south, the east, or the west, the cross is available to mankind generally. God offers the death of Christ to sinners everywhere. That's why we send missionaries all over the globe telling them, if you repent and trust Him, you'll be saved by what He did for you at Calvary. So it's available to all people. It's offered to all people. In fact, look at Numbers 15, 14. Notice this. Numbers 15, verse 14. If an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma, 
to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. Did you catch all that? If an alien is sojourning among you, now let's break that down. Who would an alien be? If you were a child of Israel, who would an alien be? A non-Israelite, right? Someone from all these other tribes like a Philistine or a Moabite or whatever. Someone who is a Gentile, a non-Jew. Let's say they, they were dwelling amongst the people of Israel and they wanted to make an offering to the Lord because they felt guilty and they wanted an offering to cover their sin. Right here it says, if they want to do that, let them do it. Just like you, a child of Israel, would make an offering by fire to the Lord, so shall that alien do too. He has the same privilege of offering sacrifice. In other words, the alien could go to the altar just like the Israelite could go to the altar. This was the one object that all people could come to. Now, the rest of the objects, like the laver and going into the tent, only the priests could do that. But the altar, anybody could come to. Anybody that wanted to. And that simply shows us that the cross is offered to all people. It's offered to you this morning. Nobody is shut out unless they shut themselves out. If you reject the cross, then you're shut out from God. But God offers you salvation through His Son's blood. See, Christianity is not just an American religion. It's not just a white man's religion, or it's not just a black man's religion. You go to any part of the world, and Christianity has taken a root. Go to China, and there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of believers scattered throughout home churches. Same is true in India. The gospel, Christianity is growing mightily in India. Parts of Africa, it, there's revival taking place. Parts of South America, you go to Canada or Europe, there are true believers in Jesus Christ all over the globe. And the gospel has the power to transform a person's life no matter what culture you've come from. No matter what culture it is, the gospel transforms people who trust it into the image of Jesus. When Paul was writing the book of Romans, listen to what he said in Romans chapter 10, verse 12. He says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. You can be a Jew or you can be a Greek. Now, folks, we would be considered Gentiles. We're non-Jews. But we have some good news here. Whoever, whether you're Jew, Greek, or Gentile, whoever you are, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved because the cross is made available to us. Okay, now let's think about the purpose of the altar. And in order to think about that, we need to go over to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 2. God says, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. 
If his offering is a burnt offering from the Lord, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Now there's two statements there that tell us the purpose of these sacrifices. The first one is in verse 3. Did you catch it? It starts with the word that, or so that. That he may be accepted before the Lord. And then there's another one in verse 4. It starts with the word to, to make atonement on their behalf. There's two purposes given for these sacrifices at the altar. So that we could be accepted, and so that atonement could be made on our behalf. Now, do you understand what atonement means? No? Okay. Atonement is a sacrifice that reconciles God and man. It's, it's a sacrifice or an offering made so that God can be reconciled to a sinner. That's exactly what the cross did. When Jesus died on the cross, he made atonement for sin. His death was a satisfaction, a payment for our sins so that those sins would never separate us again, but that we would be reconciled to God. See, when we're born into this world, we're not reconciled to God. We're separated. We're born sinners, the Bible says. And so we need to be reconciled to God. And the only sacrifice that can that can reconcile a sinner to God is the cross, which is what the altar represented. So, to be accepted before God and to make atonement on behalf of God's people. Those were the purposes of the altar. Now think about this. The altar revealed the utter sinfulness of sin. The altar revealed the utter, U-T-T-E-R, utter sinfulness of sin. Imagine a worshiper bringing his lamb he feels a sense of guilt, and he wants atonement to be made on his behalf. So he brings a, a lamb to the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the lamb is squirming and bleeding. But he takes out his knife and quickly slits the throat of the lamb, and blood is spurting everywhere. Blood is on his hands, it's on his clothes, it's all over the ground. And then he offers this dead carcass now to the priest, and the priest takes that animal and he offers it up on the brazen altar and burns it up as a burnt offering to God. It's not a very pretty sight, is it? To see that person with this lamb, a docile lamb, and its blood all over the place. But you know, the cross of Christ is not a pretty sight either. You've got a naked man, this Jew, lacerated back, looks like hamburger from the scourging that he just underwent his hands and his feet are pierced with spikes and he's he's there just in front of god and everybody just displayed as this spectacle it was not a pretty sight to teach us that sin is not pretty in the eyes of god sin is ugly sin is hideous to god he hates it and that's why he's dealt with it so severely through the cross so we see the utter sinfulness of sin, and we also see that the altar reveals the only way of atonement. 
the only way that sin can be paid for, the only way that we can be free from the guilt of sin is through an innocent substitute. You see, a person had to bring his lamb, and before the animal was killed, he would lay his hands on the head of the animal. Do you know why he did that? It was a symbolic way of saying, my sin is being transferred to the head of that animal. My guilt is on him now, because I'm laying my hand on his head. All my guilt is now on him. And when he dies, he dies so that I won't have to. I ought to die. I deserve to die because of my guilt. But God has allowed me to transfer my guilt symbolically to the head of that animal and kill him so that he dies and I don't have to. You see, that's what's going on. That's how atonement is made. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute. Our sin was transferred to the head of Christ. Remember, we just read 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin is transferred to Christ. He dies. We're free. We live because He took our place. That's the only way atonement can be made. Now, let's finally, let's think about the provision of the altar. The altar provided two things, covering over of sin and access to God. The covering of sin and access to God. Now, what if an Israelite rejected the altar? What would happen to him? If he says, I think this is crazy. I don't think God ever spoke to Moses about building an altar. I mean, the God I believe in, my God, would never require the death of thousands upon thousands of animals. I mean, that bloody stuff you're talking about is just a disgusting religion. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. So if a person took that position, what would happen to him? Yeah, he's rejected the sacrifice. He has no hope. He can't approach God. He has no atonement for his sin. He has no access to God. He's shut out from God's presence forever. And a lot of people take that same position. They say, God, the, the, the religion you talk about is just this bloody religion. I, it's, it's kind of disgusting to me if you want me to tell you the honest truth about it. It's, it's, uh, it's gross. You're always talking about the blood of Jesus all the time. And so they, they really want nothing to do with that kind of a religion. They want a refined religion, a, re a religion of good works, a religion of following the example of Christ. But that religion won't save anyone. You have to start at the cross. So there we have the altar. Now let's, as Israelites, let's move past the altar and let's come to the next object which is a laver. And someone asked me earlier, what's a laver? Never heard of that word. A laver is like a wash basin. Let's put up the picture of it. See, it's like that. It's a little fountain filled with water where you can wash your hands and you can get water and you can wash your feet. There is a big difference between the altar and the laver. And they picture different truths. The altar is connected with blood the laver is connected with water. The altar 
speaks about propitiation. I'll explain that word. That means to satisfy God's wrath against sin. It's a sacrifice that takes away wrath, anger. That's what the cross does, and that's what the altar pictures. But the laver pictures purification. Not propitiation, it's purification. The altar was available to anyone, but the laver is only available to the priests who had first gone to the altar. Couldn't get to the laver until you went to the altar first. The altar is associated with our justification. It means to be declared right by God, to have a right standing before God. <clears throat> but the laver is associated with sanctification. Do you understand what that word sanctification means? That, the word sanctification means, means to become holy. It means to be set apart from sin to God. And as soon as a person comes to the cross and is saved, the Holy Spirit begins a work of sanctifying them or making them like Christ. So the laver is a picture of that truth, or sanctification. <clears throat> the scripture that we would associate with the altar is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That comes from Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to look it up. I don't know the verse number. But the scripture that we would have put over the laver is without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. The altar, without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. The laver, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. The altar pictures Jesus, our sacrifice. The laver pictures Jesus, our sanctifier. Now, do you see the difference between the two? <coughs> Excuse me. The labor speaks of the cross where we first come and are saved. We are washed from all our sins. The labor speaks of the daily cleansing of our hands and our feet that come into contact with the defilement of this world. Now, what was the labor made of? In fact, we need to go to Exodus chapter 30. And just read about it. <clears throat> it's Exodus 30, verse 17 to 21. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it, when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Now, what was the altar made out of? Did you see it? Hmm? It was made out of bronze, just like the altar was. Remember, bronze in the scripture is associated with the idea of judgment. Well, at the altar, it was God's judgment on sin. At the laver, it's the believer's self-judgment. We judge ourselves. We judge the sin in our own lives, and we confess it and repent of it. That's what the laver is picturing. 
What about the position of the labor? Where was it? Let's go back to our first diagram, Oleg, so they can see that one. <laughs> yeah, so there's a tent, right? And there's two objects outside of the tent. You've got the altar first, and then you've got the laver. There's the position. That teaches us that our justification, I'm using theological words, and I'm hoping you guys are understanding them. I'm going to teach you again what they mean, just to make sure nobody goes out of here in the dark. But anyway, the, the altar is associated with our justification, the laver with our sanctification. Are you confused by those terms? Let, let me just say it again so that nobody is confused. Justification means when you believe in Jesus, you have a perfect standing before God. All your sins are washed away. They're all forgiven. Well, does that mean that you live a perfect life from then on until you go to heaven? No. No. You still commit sins, and you still need to confess those sins and repent of them and be washed from those sins on a daily basis. That's what the laver pictures. When they wash their hands and wash their feet, it was like a believer who's already been to the cross and been forgiven of all his sins, but he's been defiled by the sin of this world, and so he needs it washed away so that he can serve God within the holy place. Justification precedes sanctification. Remember the feast of Passover came before the feast of unleavened bread. Passover was a picture of the cross. Feast of unleavened bread. Remember all the leaven had to be removed from the houses. Leaven is a picture of sin. So you go to the cross before you can remove the sin out of your life. A lot of people think, well, I'm just going to get rid of all my sin and then I'll come to Jesus. Well, you'll never come to him because you'll never be able to get rid of your sin. Only Jesus can take away your sin. You've got to come to him with all your sin and say, Lord, I'm a mess. Please forgive me and make me a new person. You don't try to clean yourself up first. That's backwards. You come in all of your defilement and ugliness and sin, and then he washes you at the cross. And then you begin a life of being sanctified. Now, what was the purpose of the labor? Look at Exodus 30, verse 19. Aaron and his sons, now Aaron was the high priest. His sons would be the other priests, the Levite tribe. They shall wash their hands and their feet from it, so that when they entered the tent of meeting, they would not die. In other words, if you tried to enter that holy tent without washing your hands or your feet first, God would kill you. That's how seriously God took this. You could not enter the tent to serve God if you weren't going to wash first. So the purpose was, see, when the priest went into that tent, there wasn't any floor. There wasn't any carpet. There wasn't any laminate flooring or hardwood flooring. What was it? It was dirt. Sand and dirt. And so they had sandals on, and their feet would get dirty as they went into that tent. Now, in order to remove the filth from their feet so that they could come as a clean vessel into that holy place, they would stop at the laver and wash their feet. And wa what was on their hands? Blood. Blood-stained hands and defiled feet, dirty feet. They had to wash the blood off. They had to wash the dirt off their feet before they could come into God's presence and serve Him in the holy place, in the tent. And do you know what that is to be a picture of 
For the Christian, we can't serve God unless we're willing to deal with our sin. We can't live unholy lives and still serve the Lord. I've heard of people who are deacons in churches or ushers or Bible study leaders or Sunday school leaders who are committing fornication, committing adultery, and that is, that's, that's blasphemous. Those who would serve the Lord need to be holy vessels. Now, of course, nobody is a perfect vessel, but you have to be repenting of known sin in your life and confessing it to God. That's a given for any child of God. I want you to go with me over to John chapter 13. Jesus pictures all of this so perfectly here. You see, we're like priests. When we go throughout our day, we contact the world. Our feet contact the world, and we get dirty. Do you know what I mean by the world making you dirty? Like if you go to your job and you hear people swearing and cursing and telling dirty jokes, and there's smut and there's filth everywhere. You drive down the road and you see these billboards of half-clothed, or less than half-clothed women. <laughs> you open up a magazine and it, you, you feel dirty all over. You watch TV and there's garbage on TV. Everywhere you look, the world is throwing this filth at you. And by the end of the day, you feel, man, I need a spiritual bath. I feel dirty. I feel like I've been defiled just by being out in the world today. Well, look at what happens in John 13. Jesus goes to his disciples and he washes their feet. And you remember what happens when he comes to Peter? How did Peter react to him? In verse 8 of John 13, Peter said to Jesus, Never shall you wash my feet. Never. Lord, that, that's humiliating. I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. The word part means communion or fellowship. Unless I wash your feet, Peter, you can't be part of this band of disciples. You can't be with me. You can't have fellowship with me. And so good old lovable Peter, what, how does he respond to that? He says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I mean, wash me all over, Lord. <laughs> and the Lord says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. When Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, he's talking about when a person comes to Christ, they're bathed, they're washed all over. God washes away all their sin. It's like taking a bath, and you're clean all over. But once that happens to you, you find that, you're, that, that you feel dirty sometimes just by your contact with the world and what you hear and what you see and what's going on around you. And so Jesus said, he still needs to wash his feet. You might be completely clean, but since you've been contacting this dirty world, you still need your feet washed. And so what we need to do is take our dirty feet and put them into the nail-scarred hands of Christ and say, Lord, please wash away this defilement. You've already dealt with my sin. I know I'm right with you. I know I have a perfect standing before you, but... I can't fellowship with you as long as this sin is in my life and 
I need it to be gone. I just want to confess it to you, Lord. I'm repenting of it now. So going to the laver is the process of repenting and confessing sin. And you and I, we can have no real ongoing daily fellowship with Jesus unless we are confessing the sin in our life to Him and turning away from it. What did the labor symbolize? Look at Exodus 38, verse 8. Exodus 38, verse 8. Moreover, he made the laver of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. <laughs> they made the laver out of mirrors. Now, back then, they didn't have glass mirrors. If a woman wanted to look at her reflection, she got a piece of bronze that was very finely polished so that she could see her reflection in that bronze mirror. Well, the women sacrificed their mirrors. That was one thing in itself, you know. But that's that, pretty cool that they took the mirrors, that thing that reflected the pride that they had in themselves and their appearance and their beauty. They gave all that up and they, they, they burned it down and made this uh, laver out of those mirrors. Do you remember any scripture in the New Testament that talks about a mirror? Okay, that, that is a good scripture. That's 1 Corinthians 13. I had another one in mind. Uh, James chapter 1, 23 to 25, where it says, Don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers. Because if you're a hearer only, you're like a man who looks at his face in the mirror, and then he immediately forgets what manner of person he was. He walks away. It's like me in the morning. <laughs> Sometimes I can go. And I usually don't even look in the mirror. But if I happen to, I'll see my hair pointing straight up and going all these directions. It would be like me seeing my hair going all in these different directions, and then I just forgot all about it, put my clothes on, and went off to work. You know, that's what a hearer of the word is like who doesn't do the word. The mirror is there to show you how you are to change your appearance, right? He says that's what the word is like. The Word of God is like a mirror. It's intended to show you the sin in your life so that you can confess it to God and repent of it. So, it was made of mirrors. The mirror is a picture of God's Word. But the laver also contained water. And the water is symbolic also of God's Word. Go over to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And here Paul is talking about marriage, husbands and wives. But he says something really important. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word you catch that that's how jesus sanctifies his church he washes them with the word so that 
he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So right now, Jesus is perfecting his church. The church is his bride. The Lord is beautifying his bride. He's getting her ready so that when he comes back, she can be presented to him in all of her glory. And how does he do it? It says here, he sanctifies her by cleansing her with the washing of water with the word. The word of God is like a mirror to reveal your sin, and it's like water to cleanse you of sin. Okay, so how do we apply the teaching of the labor to our lives today? You wash yourself every day in the word of God. Every day you open up the scriptures and you say, Lord, speak to me. If there's something wrong in my life, please show me. Show me how you want to correct my life, how you want to make me different. And as the Lord shows you that, then it's like you're taking your feet and putting them into the hands of Jesus and saying, Lord, would you just please wash away the defilement that's sticking to me? I don't want to be dirty before you. I want to walk in holiness before you, Lord. I think that's what's happening as we're going through the New Testament as a church. At least I know it's happening to me. And I've got a whole bunch of family members that are also going through that same chapter and we're texting each other and telling. And it's amazing to hear all the insights people are getting about what the Lord is showing them about areas of their own life that he wants to deal with. See, we're like priests washing our hands, washing our feet so that we can go into the tent and we can serve the Lord there. That's what the symbolism of the laver is all about. Now, what are the privileges of the laver? It allowed access into the tabernacle. Couldn't go any further than the labor. You couldn't go into that tent unless you first went to the labor and washed. But if you did wash, you had the privilege of going into that tent, that sacred dwelling place of God. And you know what? We can't go any further in our Christian life if we are not willing to deal with sin in our life. You want to go to a deeper place with God? You want to be closer to God? You want to enjoy God more and experience His power in your life more? You can't do it unless you're willing to deal with your sin. Unless you're willing to confess the sin in your life to Him and, and repent of it from the heart and turn away from it and say, Lord, cleanse me, move me away from that, make me pure and holy. So think about just today, the, the sin that you know that is in your life that keeps defiling your feet and your hands. You look like a blood-stained priest. You look like a, a priest with dirty feet. What are those sins in your life? Identify them. Go to God with them. Allow His Word to reveal the things to you that are displeasing in His sight. And just tell the Lord, Lord, I know this is wrong. I agree with you it's wrong. Please cleanse me. Wash me. Make me new. And give me the ability and strength to turn away from these things to a life of holiness. That's how you apply the teaching of the labor to your life. Now, there's two mistakes that people sometimes make. The first mistake is that they come to God without going to the cross first. Or at least they try to come to God. Have you ever known a person like that? They're not trusting in the cross. They're going by their own good works. They think that they're good enough to approach God. They think they've lived a fine, upstanding life. They attend church. 
They even read the Bible sometimes. But they're not trusting in Christ crucified to save them. They're trusting in themselves. Or there might be a, one of the many dozens of other religions in the world today, but they're following a man-made system of performance, of deeds, of doing this, of kneeling here, praying that, that many times there. Whatever it is, they've all got some system whereby you supposedly can approach God, but all of them will fail. Because our works will never be good enough to approach an infinitely holy God. We're not holy. <laughs> We're shot through. We're fallen. We're shot through with sin. We need some other means of approach to a holy God, and only the gospel provides that approach. So don't make the mistake of trying to go to God without coming to the cross. We need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 51. Listen to this. Psalm 51. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. That's the spirit of a person who's coming by way of the cross. They're convicted of their sin. They're grieved because of their sin and they don't want to commit them anymore. They want to do what is right in God's sight. Okay, the second mistake that people make is trying to serve God without pursuing holiness. Maybe they want to lead a Bible study or lead a missional community or start a church or be a worship leader or lead a women's group. Whatever it is, they want to serve the Lord, but their lives are so so unholy, so, so different than Jesus' life. And they're not pursuing holiness. They're not confessing their sin to Him. They're not repenting. They're not in the Word when the Word's cleansing them like they're at the labor day by day. That's a mistake. The priest could not go into the tent to put those loaves of bread on the table or to light the wicks at the lampstand or to present the, um, the incense and burn the incense at that altar. They couldn't do any of that unless they had first washed their feet and their hands. And God expects those that would serve Him to be clean. Let me show you this from 2 Corinthians 6, which we just read as a church not too many days ago. <clears throat> Look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. God says, Therefore come out from their midst, and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You hear that? 
Come out from their midst, the midst of the people of the world, ungodly people. Come out from their midst. Be separate. That doesn't mean that we don't talk to them or witness to them. It just means that we don't be, act like them. And then he says in chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. So we have defilements of flesh and spirit. What would be a defilement of the flesh? What's an example of that? Yes, yes. Okay, so what do you do? What do you do at parties? You drink. No, you don't just drink. You get drunk, right? Take drugs, right? You sleep around. What's that? That's right. Part of sinful conversations. So these sins of the flesh are things like. Uh, dr drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, gluttony, things that our body does. But what would a sin of the spirit be? Your mindset. Yeah. What you're yes, and what, what would be some sinful things going on in your mind? Lust. Okay, lust. What else? Greed, Greed pride, covetousness. All the things that we can't see about each other, but we know they're happening inside our minds. He says, cleanse yourself of both types of sin. Not just the outward, external ones, but the inward ones that are going on in your heart and mind, too. It starts in the mind. That's right. Yes. Tearing yourself down? Yeah. When you're the righteousness of God and just uh, listening to the devil's lies and telling you, I'm, I'm nothing. Well, that's not true. You're the righteousness of God in him. That's the truth of scripture. That's right. There's another defilement of the spirit right there. So that's the second mistake that we make. I want to encourage all of you folks to pursue holiness. The Bible says you can't see the Lord. Pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And I don't want to stand up here and tell you a pack of lies like you can live out however way you want. As long as you believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that every one of his people are going to be sanctified. And if you're not being sanctified, then the only conclusion we can come to is maybe you're not one of his people. Because the Holy Spirit does that to every Christian. Now, in some Christians' lives, it's faster than others. Sometimes it's more dramatic in some Christians than in others. But in every single case of a true Christian, God is going to purify your life. So let's learn from the labor today. Let's, let's be about the business of going to the Word of God on a daily basis and allowing God to speak to us so that we can confess and repent of our sin. Amen? Okay. And we do ask you, Lord, to seal this truth to our heart and help us to apply it. In Jesus' name. Amen.